Please be taking out your Bibles tonight and turning to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. While you're doing that, there are a couple of other announcements or updates. Uh, there is a young man for whom we are being asked to pray. His name is Chris Bacon. I say he's young, he's younger than I am. Uh, Chris Bacon, who has COVID and pneumonia, as is happening a lot, it seems, today, and it is not looking good for this young man. So please keep Chris Bacon in your prayers. Also had a, an opportunity to communicate a little bit today with Cheryl and Walena, and Cheryl is improving slightly, but Walena is not. And um, so we definitely keep, need to keep her in our prayers. Uh, she is not improving at all. So. Uh, just a couple of quick updates there. Tonight, we continue with our fourth installation of this sermon mini-series about elders' qualities or qualifications entitled, God's Righteous Requirements for Those Who Would Serve as Shepherds in His Son's Church. The reason that it is so important that we so thoroughly cover this as a congregation is because as we confirmed and pointed out in our conclusion to the lesson a couple of weeks ago, although Titus was left on Crete to appoint elders, Titus 1.5, it is neither the current elders, the current deacons, or the current minister's responsibility to select these men. Instead, it is the entire congregation's responsibility over whom these men will be shepherding to select and to put forth the men and their wives for appointment whom they have recognized and identified based upon these God-given qualifications are the ones whom God wants to lead, serve, oversee, and protect his only begotten son's blood-bought church in any given locale. This necessary inference that it is the congregation's responsibility to select from among themselves and put forward those whom others will then appoint is gained from Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 6 wherein verses 2 and 3 say then the twelve that is the apostles summoned the multitude of the disciples and said it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables therefore brethren seek out from among you seven men of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. Now, that wasn't elders at the time. That was um, those servants who would take care of the Hellenistic Jews and all of that, but it does set a precedent for us. And so having covered the first two of the God-given requirements of 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, that is that a bishop then must be blameless and the husband of one wife, Tonight we will move on and we will continue with our Greek word study as we continue to look at the next few qualities which an elder must 
also exhibit, or better yet, not just exhibit, but be known for. These should be qualities that when you look at this particular person, or you think of this particular person, these come to mind, or when you think of these particular qualities, you think of these particular people. As Brother David Roper wrote, the next three qualifications in verse two have to do with an elder's self-discipline. The first two words are synonyms, temperate and prudent, both of which relate to being self-controlled. The third trait relates to the first two, respectable. Now your version may not use those exact words and we'll get into all of that momentarily. Brother Kaufman wrote, it has often been remarked that the preconditions of leadership in the church are not such things as unusual talent, wealth, power, or ability, but sound moral and ethical conduct. And, and I think that's important. You know, Jesus said that his kingdom was not of this world. He told us that his kingdom was going to be different. And I think sometimes when we are looking at those men and or women for elders and their wives, in the right context there, uh, for elders and their wives, that sometimes we will look at just a person's business dealings or what might get them promoted in a, in a secular setting. But as Brother Kaufman said, the preconditions of leadership in the church are not unusual talent, wealth, talent, wealth, power, ability, but sound moral and ethical conduct. And we're going to see that very shortly. So, the first of these three terms that are interrelated, the first of these three terms that a bishop, elder, or overseer must then be is temperate. That is the New King James Version reading. First Timothy 3.2, an elder must be temperate. Now, other versions will use a different word. King James, for example, uses vigilant. King James Version, uses vigilant, the English Standard Version uses sober-minded. The word that's actually used there, no matter how it's translated, is nephalios, or nephalios. I'm no Greek scholar. Is there a Greek scholar in the room? Raise your hand. None? Okay, so no matter how I pronounce this, you can't say that I pronounced it wrong, right? Okay. Nephalios, nephalios, however it is pronounced, that is the actual Greek word, and what that word means, according to Strong's, abstaining from wine, either entirely or at least from its immoderate use, and secondly, of things free from all wine. Now, obviously, as the word is used here, and we know that words in their context, even though a word may mean something, it, it, it can be extended, and, and certainly here by extension, it means far more than just abstaining from alcohol. As Brother Lonnie Ritchie wrote, obviously the bishop cannot be one who is unable to control himself when it comes to alcohol. Or for that matter, anything else that would be detrimental to himself or his example before other men. And I think that's by extension what we need to understand with this word, is that he is able to control himself, as it were. 
This is a Greek term that we see two other times in the scriptures. And one of the things that amazed me as I went through these words, quite often we'll see that they're pretty much limited to just 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. We don't see them anywhere else in scripture, some of these words. They're limited to what we call the pastoral epistles, and we see that again and again. This Greek term here, nephalios, is one of those. It's seen two other times in the scriptures, both of which also occur in the pastoral epistles, and both of which have to do with maturity when it comes to those church leaders, as it were. 1 Timothy 3.11, it is shown to be a must for the wives of elders and deacons. It is also used in Titus 2.2. In his wrap-up or further explanation of what elders and in fact all older mature Christian men ought to be. So we see it there. The second of these three Greek terms in 1 Timothy 3.2 that we're covering tonight. The second of these three terms which insist on an elder being one who exercises great restraint or self-control is sophron or sophron that is the greek term according to strong's it means of a sound mind sane in one's senses and number two curbing one's desires and impulses self-controlled or temperate and one of the things that's kind of amazing here is is you'll see a word that's translated temperate in one version and later on, you'll see another Greek word, which is translated temperate in another version, but it isn't the same word, because these words, as we just read from Brother Roper, the first two are synonymous. And you say, well, we don't talk like that, don't we? Do we ever use two very, very closely related terms to describe the same thing? Of course we do. I was asked just before services, how, how Hannah? My granddaughter was doing. Beautiful, awesome, perfect, wonderful. Now, <laughs> those terms are pretty closely related, right? Little bit different, but they all say basically the same thing. And so it's interesting here as, as he starts out with these three interrelated terms that they're all so closely related, but that points out how much they are important. This word translated sober-minded in the New King James is translated prudent in the New American Standard or self-controlled in the ESV. And again, when you look at how closely related that word and the one before it are, it's sort of like when Jesus said, remember, Jesus is reported in the King James Version in the Gospel according to John to saying, verily, verily, I say unto you, twice he uses that word. It's like, this is super duper important, verily, verily. Jesus used that phrase 25 times in the Gospel according to John in the King James Version. Or it's like when the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 1, 9, and I say again, it's like I'm underscoring this, I'm, I'm making this really jump out, you gotta get this. Well, when these terms that are so closely related are used bing, 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 one after another, it's like you gotta understand this is what an elder has to be, has to be. This term sophron is another one of those terms that is unique to and only appears in the pastoral epistles. In fact, 
The only other place it's used is three times in Titus. It's used in Titus 1 and verse 8, speaking again of elders and how they must be sober-minded, New King James Version, or sensible, New American Standard, or self-controlled, ESV again. It's used again in Titus 2 and verse 2, regarding how the older men are to be temperate, the New King James Version translates it, or once again, sensible, New American Standard, or self-controlled, English Standard. And finally, it's used in Titus 2.5, that the older women are to teach the younger women to be discreet. That's another translation of this word, sophron, discreet, in the New King James Version, in Titus 2.5, and again, New American Standard translates it sensible there, and ESV translates it self-controlled, no matter how you look at it. It is a person who is in control of themselves, their faculties, they curb their desires and impulses, and you need a person like that for an elder, don't you? Sometimes things get very difficult for the leaders because leaders are dealing with people, and sometimes when you're dealing with people, that can be difficult. Not all people agree, not even in the church, and sometimes <clears throat> it'd be very easy as an elder to become frustrated. And so you need men who are able to curb that or control that, who are self-controlled, temperate, prudent, or sober-minded. So that is the second of our terms, sophron. The third related term here of these three, which all have to do with a slightly different facet of self-control, is cosmios or cosmios. The Strong's says of this word, what it means is well-arranged, modest, orderly, or of good behavior. Orderly, of good behavior. Brother Ritchie said he must live an orderly, well-arranged life that is highlighted by proper behavior. When we're looking for those men to serve as elders, they must be those men whom, when we think of proper behavior, what a Christian's behavior ought to be, we think of that person. Brother Ritchie goes on to say, a man who cannot organize his own life as to priorities, duties, and etc cannot help the church to do so either. And you see that, that orderliness come into it. A man who cannot organize correctly and carry out correctly the priorities in his own life, cannot organize them, cannot help the church to do so either. And as I thought of that, I thought about, okay, priorities. This is an easy one. Is this a person who is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? That's to be our top priority, right? Seek ye first. Number one, top, that's it. And so this must be a person who in their own life is seeking first the kingdom of God and not being distracted from that as we talked about this morning. That's what the word means. The word is translated as of good behavior in both the old King James and the new King James. The new American standard and the English standard both translate the word Respectable. Respectable. Do you respect somebody? 
who is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Do you respect somebody who makes that the top priority in their life? That is respectable. That is good behavior. That's what the word means. The only other time we see it, that word, again, is in that same pastoral epistle in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 9 in regards to proper, godly, Christian women's apparel and appearance. Brother Kaufman concludes on these three words. He says this, such qualifications as temperate, sober-minded, and orderly in church elders are absolutely mandatory. The church today is beset with every conceivable fad, fancy, fiction, and nostrum that the devil himself can invent. And for dealing with such things, the church of all ages needs stable, sober, orderly, right-minded men who have the courage and ability to protect and nourish the flock of God. That brings us to the sixth element of 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, which any man being considered as possibly being one of those whom the Holy Spirit is seeking to point out to us as God's choice for an elder in the local flock must possess. He must be hospitable. Now, when we think of the word hospitable, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, somebody has people over in their house, right? <clears throat> when we look at these next two terms, hospitable and apt to teach, we're going to find out there's a lot more to these terms than meets the eye. There's a lot more to these terms than we see on the surface. This is one of them. He must be hospitable or given to hospitality, as it says in the King James and American Standard Version. This is a must for an elder. It's listed here in 1 Timothy 3.2, and that word is seen again, that phrase in Titus 1.8. It's interesting. This word, this Greek word, phylozenos, is a compound word. We all know what a compound word is. It's made up of at least two words. This word philozenos comes from philo, which means love, and xenos, which means stranger. So philozenos means love of strangers. That's what it means. He must be one who is hospitable, given hospitality, or a love of strangers, has a love of strangers. I thought it was interesting, when you're using resources, and, and any of you who put lessons together for, it doesn't matter, for home Bible study or church lessons or Bible classes back there for the children, it's, it's not all the time that you find every resource that you use that agrees completely on every nuance. And so I thought it interesting, the three primary sources of commentary that I'm using, there are other sources, uh, other resources, but of the three that I'm using, I was amazed at how close they came to saying the same exact thing on Philozenos. Let me, let me read them to you. Brother Lonnie Ritchie says of this word, it carries much more significance than just the idea of having someone over for food or fellowship. 
In Paul's era, when persecution of Christians was a constant and very present danger, and travel was a risky business at best because of brigands that frequented the roads and inns of those days, there was a need for Christians to take care of other Christians when they were traveling, when they were fleeing persecution, or when they were without the necessities of life. The church bishop must be known as this kind of person. Number two, Brothers Roper and Clower. The author of Hebrews wrote, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, Hebrews 13, 2. In those days, inns were notoriously expensive, filthy, and often unsafe, especially for Christians. Remember the persecutions they were undergoing. Remember the writer of Hebrews where he talked about, you've lost all this stuff. I mean, you didn't just go trucking down the highway and get off at an exit that had 16 hotels like we do. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. Brothers Roper and Clore continue, there was a need for Christians to open their doors to their brothers and sisters who were traveling. Times have changed, it's true, but a leader in the church should still be concerned about everyone, both friends and strangers. That's the idea. I gotta share this. I think I have before, but it's worth repeating. The wisdom of one of our elders and I have told this story more than once. Because to me it epitomizes this idea, a, a love for strangers. When we had the Hope Harbor box over here, it was routinely being stolen from. There were several cars pulled in there at any time, broad daylight. <laughs> Karen and I'd be sitting there eating, eating supper in the, in the little alcove there and we'd watch people pull in and just get the stuff out of the box and throw it in their car and take off. It just, it just, it happened multiple times. Different cars, different people. So, one night when it happened, I went out with my little pad and paper and got the license plate. I thought, we've got to do something here. I mean, the stuff's not getting to Hope Harbor. What are we going to do? So I wrote down the license plate. But as a Christian, you don't really feel that good about you know, calling the police on somebody, but at the same time, you see, you see kind of a, you know, rock and hard place. So I called one of our elders and I said, this is the situation. I got their license plate. What do you want me to do? <laughs> it's one of the great things about having elders, right? You can say, let the elders handle it, right? <clears throat> As a preacher, anyway. This is what I was told, and I love this. He said, turn their number over to the police, their, their tag number. I call it license plates in New England, think their tag number. Give it to the police. And tell the police when they find them, we do not want to press charges. Tell them, have the police tell them that if they can't pay their electric bill, if they're hungry, if they have a need, they don't need to steal from us. All they need to do is come see us. I love that. That's the kind of wisdom that takes care of strangers. Even people that are stealing from you, tell them, you don't need to steal from us. You don't need to steal from the children's home. If you're hungry, if you need help, come talk to us. We'll help you. That's godly wisdom. That's mature Christian leadership. That is a philozenos 
love of strangers. Brother Kaufman agreed with brothers Ritchie, Roper, and Clore when he wrote, in the times during which Paul was writing, there were not many inns of the type available today. Many Christians were required to travel, some being displaced from their homes by persecutions and others traveling in the spread of the gospel of the service of the church. Elders were to be chosen from that class of Christians who opened their doors to fellow saints in need or distress. Little reference is made here, if any, to the type of hospitality that says, come over to my house and have a good time and later we'll go to yours for the same purpose. You see, there's a little bit more to this terminology than just having somebody over for dinner who's Christian. Another resource said he must be willing to assist others and come to their aid, even those whom he does not know. Now, here's the question. How are we to recognize those whom the Holy Spirit has set apart to be elders. How are we to recognize? I'll tell you how. You want to know how you're going to find somebody that, that does this? They're going to already be doing it. They're going to be taking care of the needs of strangers as best they can. Remember, if you want to know, if you want to know what somebody wants to be, if anyone desires the work of an elder, he desires a noble work. If he desires this, this task, he desires a noble work. First. Timothy 3 and verse 1. How do you know if somebody wants something? Because they're already doing the work. Like I said, you want to know how a young man, you want to know a young man that wants to be a preacher? Watch him, watch him almost beg to do devotionals and to preach and to do all these different things and to look for opportunities to serve. That's a young man who wants to do it. You want to see a, a person who aspires to be an elder? They're already doing the work. They, are, they have this philozenos. They're already practicing a love of strangers in whatever, whatever sense or, or form that that takes. It's the same kind of love and hospitality Shown by the Good Samaritan story in Luke 10, 30 through 37. Although philozenos does not occur as a word in that text, that's, that, that's a good example of, of what it looks like. It's the same kind of love and hospitality every, whoa, every Christian, every Christian must learn to practice who wants to go to heaven. Now, those are pretty strong words. But if you read Matthew 25, verses 34 and following, you will see that it is that kind of love of strangers clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, that every Christian who wants to go to heaven must learn to practice. This can also be seen and evidenced by the only other New Testament text, the only other text at all in which this Greek word is used, wherein the apostle Peter commanded those Christians who were scattered, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, to 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable, be philozenos, be a love of strangers, exhibiting person. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, minister, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Again, 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. And you know, I suppose you could say it's that type of hospitality, that love of strangers that kind of was used by God in a providential way to help Karen and I come to Oklahoma. In 
in a congregation that I was preaching for in a very touristy area. Got a call several states away. Got a call one day from a, a brother in Christ. He said, hey, he said, my family and I are, are coming up there to enjoy the sights and it's my wife and I and four kids. And he said, whenever we stop anywhere, stay anywhere, he said, we typically have to, you know, get two more, I mean, it was six of them, right? So, I mean, it was an expensive travel. And he said, so we're coming up in that area to see some sights and such, and we're planning to spend a week up there where, where you are. And he said, I thought I'd call the church. Do you have anybody there in the church who could maybe put us up for a week? That's eh, a pretty tall order, right? But there was this deacon in the congregation I was serving. He and his wife had been very blessed, and they had a big house. Not only did they have a big house, but it had like a, almost a, a, an apartment in, in the basement. And so I, I got in contact with them, and they said, yeah, sure, they can come up here and stay. So this elder and his wife had this family of six in their basement, kitchen and all that, for about a week. And, and while we were there, this gentleman from Oklahoma and I got pretty close. And one thing led to another. Without taking time to go into the whole story, when he left after vacation, Come back to Oklahoma and found out that things were going south where I was, he became an essential link in the chain of events that got us to Oklahoma and eventually to Shoto. That man, that deacon, has now become an elder in that congregation. But it's that type of thing. It's, it's this willing to go out of your way for strength, whatever form that takes. Which brings us to the seventh and final element of 1 Timothy 3.2, which we must not only be seeking, but finding in order to consider any man even as a potential candidate to shepherd the local flock. And that is that he must be able to teach, as it says in the New King James Version. Or apt to teach, as it says in the King James and American Standard versions. And once again, like so many of these terms, there's a lot more to this term and qualification than just what you'd see on the surface. A lot more. Why do they say, why do they say not to, to drive through running water if you see a puddle when there's heavy rains? Right? Turn around, don't drown. You hear that on the weather all the time, right? Why do they say that? Well, not only because the water can sweep you away, but you don't know what's under the surface. There could be a pothole there this big that would swallow your truck, right? Well, if it was a small truck. Point being, you don't know what's under the surface. And so as we look at these qualifications and we just look at the surface, we don't see everything there is below unless we do a study like this. And so we consider this term. The only other place that this term occurs in the scriptures is once again in the pastoral epistles. In 2 Timothy 2, in verse 24. And in that text, it is used as a requirement for all bondservants of Christ who would seek to teach the lost, who would seek to fulfill their heaven-given mission, as we talked about this morning, of seeking and saving the lost. I want you to turn there with me. Would you please, 2 Timothy, please turn there. Chapter 2. Only other place we see this word. 
and a servant of the Lord. Stop right there. Talking about elders? Uh-huh. Talking about deacons? Uh-huh. Preachers? Uh-huh. Talking about you? If you're a Christian, you're servant of the Lord. Aren't you? If you aren't, you better rethink your Christianity. We are bond servants. We are servants. And so the text again says, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach. Same exact phraseology, same word. Patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Do you remember when we started this study, I made the point that these are virtues which every Christian should aspire to attain. But when you come to those who are elders, they are the cream of the crop in these areas. These are things that are very obvious and evident with them. And so we see that same terminology here. Go back with me to 1 Timothy 3. This phrase, able to teach, as the New King James says, or apt to teach, as the Old King James says. According to Strong's, again, the meaning of the term is apt and skillful in teaching. Doesn't mean he's got to have PhD. Doesn't mean that at all. But he's got to be apt. One resource I'm using says, we see why he, that is an elder, must be skilled in teaching by the language that Titus used. Look with me in Titus 1. Titus chapter 1, we, we see why he's got to be apt or able or skillful in teaching. As, as these qualifications are not only given in 1 Timothy 3, but in Titus chapter 1, look what it says there in verse 9. Remember, the sentence started out in verse 7, for a bishop must be, there's that word must again, Titus 1, 7. A bishop must be, he goes down through this list, but then he gets to verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. We would note similar in Acts 20, 27 through 32, which if you're taking notes, look that up a little bit later on. But that same resource then went on to say, it is sad and inexcusable that men are serving as elders who cannot even teach, much less possess the level of skill required to silence those in error. If you want to know today why some congregations of the Lord's Church are in the mess they're in, because they haven't had elders who meet these qualifications. Those who are apt to teach as well as all of the rest of them. Brother Kaufman said, the Christian life is a life of study and learning. Ill-informed elders are a contradiction in terms. 
Every elder should be able to shut the mouths of the gainsayers, shield the church from false teaching, and see to it that truth and truth alone is fed to their charges. It is regrettable that this qualification is sometimes overlooked. And I even dare go so far as to say that what he just described is what you sometimes get, in fact, what you do get, whenever you treat the selection of elders as a personal, political, seniority, or popularity contest instead of a congregational test of our faith to see if we love the Lord enough to follow His commandments when it comes to their qualifications. Too many times. If a person is popular or a person has, has done this or that, too many times what will happen is that is that people will, will put in elders that fit their qualification list. It's like people People create God in their own image, don't they? Don't people create God in their own image? They, God is whoever they want God to be at the time. Some people do that with elders. But we don't have a right to go outside of these qualifications, these musts. To be apt in, and skillful in teaching means not only must he be apt or able at it, he must be apt and wanting to do it. There's a difference. Is there a difference between a person who can do something and a person who wants to do something? Is there a difference? You see, apt to teach carries with it the idea that he's apt to do it. If something is apt to happen, then it's pretty likely, right? One who is apt to teach not only can do it, but wants to do it. And as again, not only must he be apt or able at it, he must be apt in wanting to do it, as shown in his actions of already seeking to every time the opportunity presents itself. It's like I said earlier, they're already doing it. He's already either always looking for or even creating his own opportunities to present the life-giving and soul-saving message of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be apt to teach. What was it Jeremiah said? about a fire in his bones, he had to get it out, didn't he? What did Paul say? Woe to me if I do not, I got, <laughs> I got to tell people. One who is apt to teach is one who really wants to at every opportunity possible. Brother Lonnie Ritchie said, apt to teach, didacticos, means that he must be able to teach with skill. It suggests the idea, again, not only of ability, but of willingness. The man who would lead God's church must be one who loves, studies, and willingly teaches God's word to his people. After all, if he has no good grasp of the truth himself, how can he possibly teach it to the congregation to protect the church from error? Good point. We have at this point covered the First seven essential qualifications which a man must be exhibiting, not just have, but be exhibiting, and therefore be seen as possessing in order for him to be recognized as one of the men the Holy Spirit has already sanctified to be an elder. 
And in closing, I'm also mindful that these are qualifications for the most part which every Christian should appropriately aspire to, whether they ever aspire to the eldership or not. That journey begins the day that one is born again of the water and the spirit for the forgiveness of their sins. But then it continues with everyday growth and study in Christian knowledge and in the Christian graces and virtues. What did Peter write? Add to this quality this quality and add to this one this one. These are things that all of us should be doing. Once we started that journey, the question tonight, have you started that journey by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And if you have, male, female, young, old, are you continuing to grow daily in these virtues, as we've talked about, that are appropriate to you as a Christian. And again, may we continue to pray that as the time draws near for us to select and appoint men and their wives as elders and their wives and possibly even deacons and their wives, let's pray. Prayer is step one, isn't it? Shouldn't we talk to God about those men before we talk to those men about doing what God wants them to do? I think we should. So let us pray for them. Let us get that into our prayers. I know we've got a lot to pray for, but the future of this congregation depends upon its leadership. In the years to come, you've had some wonderful leadership over the years. I don't know what the future holds, but I dare say that probably it'll have a few challenges along the way as well, don't you? We need those men and their wives who seek first the kingdom, who meet these qualifications because that's what God wants. And if we do that, we'll be blessed by him. If you have a need tonight, we please come to the front as we stand and as we sing.